He might actually be the most derivative one of all. I mean, Christ, the same house. Maybe so. But you forgot the first rule of surviving a stab movie. Never answer the... I'm bored. Wait! Welcome back to Horror Queers. We're talking white male midlife crises. We're talking Rick Baker prosthetics. And we're talking my business here is pleasure, George. Does she look like the fuck of the decade or what? And I'm Joe. And I'm Trace. And we're talking asparagus. (laughs) (laughs) I did love that attention to detail because that would be harder to get out of suede shoes oh god wait the the smell yes Uh, everyone (laughs) (laughs) we are discussing mike nichols wolf uh my de facto birthday pick and the closer outer of our weird sex month of episodes Hmm. Trace, mm-hmm. uh, shall I define for you what weird sex qualifies as? Because had I seen this film in advance, I would not have let you program this this month. There is not enough weird sex in this movie, sir. I'm sorry, the mere concept of Jack Nicholson fucking Michelle Pfeiffer is weird <laughs> enough for me. Ageist and rude. <laughs> but also true, because they have no chemistry, even though she is great in this movie. Yeah, they have no chemistry. I would actually, okay, so full, everyone, full stop. I actually do really like this movie. I saw it for the first time last year. I, Wild. I think this might be my Hellraiser bloodline where I'm oh like. Oh my God, be, be, sir. Because Hear me out because this movie is a mess. There are so many weird, I, I, I'm just going to read it. So I saw this for the first time last year. My friend brought mm-hmm. it over and he was like, I don't know if you're going to like it. It's kind of weird. And I was like, yeah, sure, whatever. <laughs> and you were like, that is my bread and butter. Yeah, but so my uh, my four-star letterbox review from last oh May <laughs> goes as follows. <laughs> there are so many bizarre choices, both in front of and behind the camera. I honestly don't know how this got made and would have killed to have been in the pitch meeting for this film. I'd be inclined to say it was camp if I had any idea what the intention was behind any single decision made during this production. <laughs> I kind of loved it. Question mark? <laughs> the question mark is the important part. <laughs> Okay, no, but I can see what you mean when you, I I personally was offended when you said it might be your Hellraiser bloodline. But now that you've elaborated on it a little, I do get it. Yeah, because this film is a hot mess, but there's also a bunch of things to like about it. But maybe even more questions about what and how and why. Well, Joe, this was your first time watching this. And, you know, I, 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 I had done that thing I do where I build it up for you and probably curbed your expectations a certain way. What were your thoughts on Wolf as a first-time watch? <laughs> <laughs> no, I I wanted this to be a little wackier, if we're being honest. Like, I knew about the infamous scene where Jack Nicholson pees on James Spader's shoes, yes. I knew that there was a lot of jumping and kind of wire work. And I knew that it was Jack Nicholson supposedly courting Michelle Pfeiffer. That's all I knew. And it's all of that and a bunch of random political intrigue. It's It actually reminded me a little bit of the Demi Moore, Michael Douglas, Michael Creighton disclosure? adaptation. Disclosure, where I was just like, <laughs> are we doing office intrigue bullshit in this movie? And the answer is yes. I mean, let's everyone. This is a Mike Nichols directed film. Mm-hmm. And that... This is such a weird... It's a bad fit for him. It makes no sense at all. It makes no sense. And everyone, I mean, if, you, if you're 
don't know who Mike Nichols is, uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, mm -hmm. The Graduate, Silkwood, Working Girl, then he does this, The Birdcage, and Primary Colors, and one of our favorite films, Closer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's not as though he's lacking in diversity in his portfolio, but this is like a romantic horror film and that's not part of his usual wheelhouse would we call this romantic i have seen it described as such i personally myself would not do so you know i do think there's some eroticism in this if only yeah i i, I agree that nicholson and pfeiffer don't have chemistry but at the same time i do enjoy their scenes together i mean I will confess, I sometimes have difficulty with Jack Nicholson performances outside of the kind of really iconic ones like Batman and One yeah. Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and The Shining and that kind of stuff. I often just find Jack Nicholson plays himself, and I feel that is very much the case here, where he's playing older white gentleman who is somehow dangerously sexy to women and just gets away with everything i agree with you and the thing is i actually do think that nicholson is miscast in this movie because yeah because this character is meant to be like a sad sack little guy who g connects with his id after being bitten by a wolf and unfortunately mm -hmm. there's not a lot of distinction in his performance from no as he's going through these motions i mean we see it in his character's actions but that's a screenplay thing not a nicholson's performance thing mm -hmm. yeah and this is coming like two years after he won won the oscar i think won for a few good men and like that performance is iconic because he's doing jack nicholson in the right way for that role and you can see it a little bit here when he goes wolfy but even that it it still feels like he's afraid to fully commit to the bit. Like, he looks like he's maybe having fun in some of this in a mm. cheeky kind of sly way. But overall, like, when you see what James Spader does in the role, you're just like, oh, that's what we needed. We needed all of that. Well, I'm, I'm sorry to tell you, he was not having fun in this role. But it's not because <laughs> of the film itself. And gentle correction. So he was nominated for A Few Good Men, but his three Academy Awards mm. are for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Right. Terms of Endearment. Mm. and as good as it gets oh right yeah okay yeah. i knew he had been nominated we'll put it that way i mean he's won three awards it's just like throwing nails at like a nope i don't know what metaphor i'm trying to do i'm just throwing darts into the <laughs> throwing way. nails just throwing that's the metaphor <laughs> okay but wait okay i'm sorry but there is drama about this production and y'all oh, yes a lot of this is coming from uh mark harris's 2021 biography mike nichols a life and there is an entire chapter devoted to this movie <laughs> oh yeah baby we're spilling tea so okay mike nichols has spent the better part of a year hoarding projects that could serve as the final fireworks display of his abilities when he revealed them en masse in early 1993 to i, I don't know who he revealed them to but i guess oh my god what is he doing a disney upfront presentation kind of i guess he's like you know oh look i'm gonna do like you know here's my career for the next like 10 years here's six projects and this is what i'll this is how i'll this will be the final act for me. So yay. Wow. Can you imagine having that much clout that you could just like kind of get up there and do a little song and dance? Like, these are my next three pictures. Ba -da -ba -ba -da -ba. Well, but he sounds not very decisive. So most of these were literary adaptations. Um, one included a film version of a romantic thriller called The Impersonator that was never mentioned again after he announced it. He produced The Remains of the Day, which would be released at the end of 1993. Okay. And then there were three others. So he had Robert Harris's What If the Nazis Had Won World War II suspense novel Fatherland. Mm -hmm. um, that eventually became an HBO miniseries in 1994. He had Scott Smith's A Simple Plan. 
Oh, mm-hmm. I actually could see that. I could too. But yeah, this is that would of course go on to be directed by Sam Raimi in 1998. Excellent film. If people have not seen it, oh, it's so fucking fantastic. It, uh, <laughs> yes, read the book too. The book is even better. But oh, you know. Scott Smith, always, yes, always, always the ruins, of course. The other one was Cormac McCarthy's All the Pretty Horses, which, of course, Billy Bob Thornton would direct in 2000. Mm-hmm. So he would develop all three of those and then walk away. <laughs> <laughs> Classic Nichols. The sixth film on his list was the only one he'd actually direct, and he'd already been working on it for two years. And this was Wolf. The Virginia Wolf one. <laughs> yes. Oh, my God. <laughs> I didn't even, he's got Who's Afraid of Virginia Wolf and he's got Wolf. Oh, see, those should have been the bookends of his career. Right? <laughs> so, Wolf began as a brainstorm during a bender in the 1980s. A half-formed <laughs> idea concocted by noted actor Jack Nicholson and American poet, novelist, and essayist Jim Harrison. And Harrison didn't work a lot in Hollywood. He was mostly known, again, for, for his fiction, his works of fiction, his novels and things like that. But okay. his work explored myth and masculinity and whose appetite for hunting, fishing, food, and alcohol was bottomless. So the idea that had come to them over one long, hard-drinking and probably drug-induced weekend oh, sure. was an updated werewolf story that producer Douglas Wick described as Willie Loman eats spinach. Uh, Willie Loman here being the lead character in, Ar- in Arthur Miller's play Death of a Salesman. Right. But it was to be about a sad sack, tamed and beaten down by the modern world whose transformation gives him access to the primal male energy he has long suppressed. And by God, talk about outdated fucking premises. Like, you would never be able to get this movie made nowadays because I'm sorry, we're going to make a movie about a sad white dude. (laughs) But okay, you can see it. I think that's still kind of in here. Oh, it's 100% in there. But Nicholson's performance doesn't lend that, like, doesn't lend itself to that. No, it almost doesn't even make sense when characters keep saying, you know, like, oh, we're so excited. You're finally going to get ballsy and stuff. And it's like, oh, is that what he? Oh, he's meant to be meek. Oh, he's meant to be quiet. Oh, he's meant to be trampled on. Didn't get that. I I didn't get it at all. And even on this rewatch, too, I was like, oh, right. There's supposed to be a transformation here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, the, the movie's afraid to commit. But anyway, go on, go okay. on. So Jim Harrison worked on the concept for years. And by the early 90s, the success of, God, Finding Your Inner Wild Man books. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, like Robert Bly's Iron John had given the project some momentum. And, of course, Nicholson's involvement sparked the curiosity of a number of directors. So, issue number one. Harrison was not a natural screenwriter and could never crack the plot. He had the general idea of a civilized guy connecting with his id, but could not get beyond that, which was a huge issue for Mike Nichols. And that's kind of me where I'm kind of like, Nichols clearly wanted to do this movie a Mm -hmm. lot. That's why it's like, it's the only one of these six films he fucking did. Right. But he was, he he really failed to grasp the material. Yeah. I mean, like you want to get the project off the ground, but even the person whose idea it is can't seem to break the formula. Well, so that's the thing. So Nichols knew that this idea would have to combine the high stakes and high concept of a genre film with something a bit more idiosyncratic. But he and Harrison were oil and water and could never agree on anything. Right. But he was torn. Oh, this this is why he wanted to do it. I'm sorry. He was torn because he loved Jack Nicholson. He and Jack Nicholson had worked together and and, uh, collaborated many times ever since 1971's Carnal Knowledge. And they had a pretty, like, really good collaborative relationship. But we will get back to that in a second. Right. (laughs) Everybody had a good working relationship until this movie. Pretty much. But 
he loved Nicholson. He was like, hey, but this co- this film could be a giant commercial enterprise. But his issue was he felt no connection to the heart of the film. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. That sounds like a problem. It does. It does. And in his words, a movie's artistic success depends on the metaphor that is the central engine. If the audience knows why they're there, you can soar. If you don't, no amount of cleverness with the camera or talent on the part of the actors could lift it. He also thought that werewolves were a lousy metaphor because they're not a metaphor for anything that happens to people. Um, um, mm, <laughs> mm, sir, uh, question from the back of the room. What the fuck you talking about? <laughs> I, so again, I'm kind of like, okay, so you're, I think he's only here for Nicholson, really. It sounds like it, yeah. And the potential for big success because he understands werewolves have commercial appeal kind of i mean not, mm-hmm. <laughs> but i was like maybe you weren't the best person to direct this movie so clearly yes um producer douglas wick though kept bringing up aids as a good metaphor for the film i'm um, during a lot of these production meetings by the way sweet jesus i did see that and i i'll admit i kept an eye out for it and i don't see it the only thing that's there and it's it's slight you have to reach for is that he bites Stuart, and mm-hmm. Stuart gets infected yeah but it also the movie presents it as not that bad of a thing like it almost presents it as a good thing to be bitten and become wolfy kind of because the the the, the magic indian man says oh jesus it's you're you're only the wolf is only evil if the human that it possesses is evil and so that's mm-hmm. the whole thing so it's it's it, i guess yeah it's good for you but yeah whatever whatever <laughs> but you have to not be evil on the inside right and Stuart is evil uh, clearly yes, clearly <laughs> he tries to rape laura in the final act so oh my i have so many thoughts about that sexual assault doggy style like it, yes. al- it's it's almost tacky <laughs> It's tacky and lewd and very confronting. Oh, yeah. Actually, I think that's one of the few uh, scenes that shot pretty well is her sexual assault scene. (laughs) (laughs) Congratulations, Mike Nichols. So to keep Nichols on board, because by this point he was like, I don't know if I can do this, man. Douglas Wick brought in Wesley Strick, an experienced, adaptable screenwriter who had recently written Martin Scorsese's remake of Cape Fear. But of course, as you and I know, Joe, he would go on to have a hand in the remake of A Nightmare on Elm Street. Hmm. Well, one out of two ain't bad. <laughs> uh, Strick found Harrison's draft exceedingly dense and impenetrable. Harrison later said that it would have resulted in a three-hour movie with blood coming off the fucking walls, with Nichols even telling him, please give me some scenes that I can direct. <laughs> Okay, but now I'm just imagining a part of this movie that has blood dripping off the fucking walls and wondering, well, where is that movie? Well, that's the thing. So I really feel like the original concept of this movie was much more horror-leaning. And Mike Nichols does not seem to be a huge fan of the genre. And so it does, and so that where we get the non-horror elements of the first half of the film, that's a lot of Mike Nichols and Wesley Strick's work. Right. So... Harrison left the production because of these creative differences, claiming, I wanted Dionysian, uh, irrationality and chaos, but Mike Nichols wanted Apollonian, uh, rational thinking and order. He took my wolf and made it into a chihuahua. I cracked up for 10 minutes and then went out into the country and stood in front of a wolf den and apologized while my dog hid under the truck. He then promptly (laughs) left Hollywood. (laughs) Honestly, you see that quote everywhere, like every article about this movie, they (laughs) quote Harrison saying that. Yeah. 
And it is so ridiculous. And just like, sir, no, you did not. That sounds great. But you absolutely did not drive into the country and howl at wolves. It's like George Clooney, like refunding people's Batman and Robin tickets. I was like, no, you did not. No, you didn't. (laughs) Fuck off. Stop it. So Strick worked on the screenplay for months, uh, changing Will's profession from, uh, Will being, of course, Jack Nicholson's character, from white shoe lawyer to mild-mannered literary editor, but he still struggled with to find Wolf's deeper meaning, if any existed. Is it about AIDS? Or is it the death of God? Was being a werewolf a stand-in for a politically incorrect thought? For rape fantasies? For unacceptable impulses? He couldn't know. Where is God? Etc. <laughs> Homicide's much better. <laughs> getting turned into a werewolf is a much healthier therapeutic expression honestly though here's the thing i actually think that the, the werewolf is a is a metaphor for rape fantasy does work oh it's just, absolutely it's just not really in this movie until the, that, that one scene <laughs> mm-hmm. so several drafts later the script had progressed um will's journey from man to werewolf and the idea of his professional interactions becoming increasingly feral had been more playfully developed but neither nichols nor strick had given much thought to the female lead oh you mean the other 50 percent of the film kind of i mean she doesn't really become a part of the movie until like 40 minutes in this is true <laughs> um so sometimes she was will's love interest sometimes she was his sister oh yes hmm. they offered it to pfeiffer who initially passed saying the part was thin and underconceived. good for her exactly now with production nearing um a script he didn't feel was yet shootable no lead actress nichols called the collaborator he trusted more than any other and this would be 61 year old elaine may now right they were like an improv duo together but they had collaborated many many times and admittedly i'm not familiar with this woman but she had received an oscar nomination for co-writing heaven can wait and she had also directed four movies most notably ishtar which is one of the most notorious like box office bombs and critical flops in hollywood history nice uh, I think the budget of that movie was $55 million in, like, the 70s or 80s, and it made $14 million. Ooh, boy. Ooh. Yes. That movie ended her career behind the camera. However, she is also Hollywood's most valuable invisible woman, a stealth rewriter whose reputation in the industry was unrivaled. Handed a broken screenplay, May knew how to diagnose the problem and find a fix. She would work fast, pocket a substantial paycheck, and always decline a credit. Wow. I wonder if she was just like, you know what, after Ishtar, I don't need the spotlight. I'm happy to just do the work. I guess. But you know what movie she would screenwrite after doing this? What's up? The Birdcage. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. That is interesting. It's ironic, as you were describing her kind of accolades, I was reminded of Holly Platt, who had a similar kind of career trajectory, except that she never even got really the chance to direct. But uh, yeah. Yeah. It's just, there's a whole history of women working behind the scenes and not getting any kind of credit, but being absolutely instrumental to many of our favorite films. Pretty much. But yeah, and so so this chapter in Michael Nichols' biography, it's it's called like um, Better Than Revenge or something, but it's basically about how Wolf's like trouble production led to the success of the birdcage and because uh, basically it brought Mike Nichols back to Elaine May and rekindled their partnership, which is also oh, okay. how we got the birdcage. Oh, huh. Wow. Hmm. So, um, anyway, nobody knows actually how many scripts she had improved, but she told Nichols, you have a story about a guy who wants to become a wolf, so he becomes a wolf. This is going to be a very short movie. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> I love her. <laughs> Spoiler alert, this is not a short movie. It's two hours and five minutes long. <laughs> it is too long. Yes. The first thing she focused on was the female lead, making Laura a sharp-tongued, self-sufficient, unflappable sparring partner. Pfeiffer then read her redraft and signed on. Wow. Okay. Hey, shockingly enough, when you have a woman in the room talking about your female characters, you are able to attract female actresses. Well, it's like you have three men that are trying to figure out the metaphor behind werewolves. <laughs> <laughs> and struggling to do so. Exactly. And then they're just completely ignoring the female character. Like, oh, yeah, she's his wife or his love interest or maybe his sister. Maybe both. Maybe his sister. <laughs> maybe she works at the zoo. God. Ugh. So... May also dug deeper into the acerbic comedy of the publishing house scenes, giving the cast of Christopher Plummer, David Hyde Pierce, and James Spader a bit more to do. But mm -hmm. these were Band-Aids, not solutions. And again, here's the thing. She and Nichols were still uncomfortable with the scenes in which their star would have to howl at the moon. But there was no time to do more. So... They left in, like, the horror stuff from Harrison's screenplay while mm -hmm. also adding in so much more of the stuff that might not... Again, depending on what you're coming into this movie for, like, if you're wanting a horror film, th it is here. Yeah, sporadically, and then I would say the climax. Yes, but yeah, so most of this publishing house stuff, which I actually do find very entertaining, um, but that is courtesy of May and Nichols. Yeah, I think the, the issue is that if you go into the movie like me expecting a kind of romp with a lot of, like, jack nicholson overacting and howling at the moon you're not mm -hmm. really getting that no not at all not at all and they didn't have time to do any more because nicholson had a limited window of availability and wolf with a 70 million dollar production budget <laughs> there it is i that's 140 million dollars today joe just basically it's double that like i don't what yeah how much was that benicio del toro wolfman one because i feel like that's the kind of modern day equivalent and also i feel like these two films are the reasons why we often don't get a lot of werewolf movies anymore uh yeah because the wolfman also had a notoriously troubled production um yes. that was oh god <laughs> it's over 100 million isn't it it's 150 million and it looks like ass it looks like someone has opened up an asshole taken a picture and called it a werewolf movie but i think i think with that one though the the budget was not originally that high i think that was i think that no, was it reshoot ballooned. yeah like it just kept getting bigger i actually don't mind that movie it's fine it's just forgettable <laughs> but Nah, whatever it's 150 um, million dollars of forgettable oh yeah no for sure like woof, 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 but <laughs> um but yeah they also had to do shoots in vermont new york and los angeles so they had to start by march of 93 in order to make a christmas release date spoiler alert it would not make that christmas release date which is interesting because i do imagine this movie could have played decently over christmas when if it opened soft it might have had legs because you're also appealing to women who maybe have a little bit of free time after christmas in between new years which is like the sweet spot for box office but i'm also thinking like i don't know we're, we're 1993 audiences like looking at this being like michelle pfeiffer and jack nicholson that's a weird pair <laughs> no i i feel like i remember thinking it was an unusual combination but then i was like oh but maybe we're doing like may december stuff like maybe that's the whole point I mean, I do think it's interesting that we have the villain of 1989's Batman and the villain of 1992's Batman Returns in a romantic mm -hmm. horror drama comedy thing. <laughs> yeah, which I don't think they really lean on at all. Like, they don't make, they don't acknowledge it. No, not really. But anyway, so Sam Osteen, the film's editor, was annoyed at Nichols and would not edit another one of his films after Wolf, despite having edited many of his films before this. 
He said that Mike Nichols had been negligent by declining to storyboard the shots and by forgoing mm. any meaningful rehearsals with his cast. He says Nichols was not well prepared, often making things up on the fly, but... This is because the working relationship between Nichols and Nicholson was very, very collaborative. Usually in their previous works together, they would generate ideas on the spot and it would work out fine. So I think Nichols thought that was going to be the case here. Unfortunately, on Wolf, he instead faced a Jack Nicholson who seemed surly distracted and unhappy to be there on top of shooting 17 hour workdays with long bouts in the makeup chair he was also in the middle of a split with his girlfriend rebecca broussard with whom he had two children under the age of three at the time so he would often arrive to set in a foul temper and stay that way oh yeah that's gonna be challenging to work with yep pfeiffer agrees uh pfeiffer would be waiting on set for nicholson to show up and was often ignored by mike nichols because nicholson consumed so much of his time and despite their Previously friendly collaborations, Nichols was intimidated by Nicholson's moods. This was no longer the friend and collaborator he once knew. Ugh. All right. Well, so. <laughs> so we didn't have a great idea. Maybe the wrong director for the wrong material. And now we've got a souring relationship on set. Yep. The shoot also took longer than expected, with the December release date giving way to March and then to June. And an awareness that the film was in trouble pervaded the set. Um, Christopher Plummer says that everyone knew. Like, everyone knew something was going on. But mm -hmm. he was thankful and everyone else was thankful because Mike Nichols never made it an issue during filming. So even though like they could tell shit was going on, Nichols was never like letting it affect his day where he was like, oh my god, y'all, the shoot's fucked up. <laughs> the ship is going down. We've hit the iceberg. <laughs> We're fucked. Exactly. Unfortunately, post-production didn't go well either. Nichols had made a picture posed uneasily between sophisticated satire and horror, one that needed a lot of work. They did a preview in Dallas where the film got some bad laughs, so they trimmed some of the Wolfman stuff that was playing funny. Ennio Morricone's score seemed to tell people that Jack's character was having a dream, whereas they wanted it to be scary. I didn't realize when I first watched this that Morricone did the score. So okay. listening to it again when I rewatched this, I was like, this isn't a very memorable score. Oh, it's interesting that you say that because I definitely took notice of it, but only in particular spots because mm. it seemed a little confused. Like there's weird sexy jazz mixing with orchestral in the climax of this movie. Mm. And I was like, what message are we sending but, right now? But that's why, okay, I know we don't have a ton of homoeroticism between Spader and Nicholson in this movie, but the mm -hmm. saxophone during their climactic mm -hmm. fight. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was like, are we trying to suggest some softcore fucking here? Because this is giving me late night Cinemax vibes. I 100% agree with you. Yes, yes, yes. They did two days of reshoot. So that, that's, uh, y'all, there are rumors about this movie that the release date was pushed back eight months because they had to reshoot the entire ending of this film. That mm -hmm. does not seem to be the case in what I have found. And Joe, I think you found something right. on Reddit too, where they were basically like, they, they added a couple of things, but these are all like these two days of reshoots were a bunch of little things to re-steer the film, but it wasn't like, oh, we're reshooting the ending of the film. Yeah, I, I've got a thought on maybe what might be a reshoot, but it could just be me taking notice of a particular hair and costume change. But yeah, like, you'll find the six to eight month delay everywhere you look, but nobody can actually tell you what the changes were, except... It'll reference, you know, they added in one shot of Jack Nicholson jumping up, up over the horse gate. And you're like, 
Well, that doesn't delay a movie eight months. Not at all. Not at all. And like, even for in this book, like all I got is they were that everyone was worried about the ending. And after trying several alternatives, now does that mm. mean they shot a bunch of alternatives? Right. Maybe I, I don't know, but they settled on the one we have, in which Will reveals himself as a werewolf, and Laura consents to join him in his new life. Which I'm not gonna lie, though, mm -hmm. I do like that ending. I just wish we had more of Michelle Pfeiffer in wolf mode. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> There's definitely a misunderstanding still about how best to use Michelle Pfeiffer's Laura <laughs> in this film. But I think that's also maybe the gay in us where we're just like, Michelle Pfeiffer looks fucking amazing in this movie. She's killing all of her scenes. I just wish there was more of her. Well, and yeah, yeah, I guess I was gonna say, is Mike Nichols gay? But he's not. He's not. No. Uh, yeah, we needed a gay on this movie. <laughs> um, somebody <laughs> I mean David, David Hyde Pierce can is do right the whole there. production himself <laughs> <laughs> uh, I do want to point out that, that apparently during the reshoots this was the first time that Nichols seemed to be in his element but until that point everything else had been very makeshift so he I guess right. after filming was done he was just doing the reshoots he was like okay cool I'm here now guys <laughs> Maybe he was relaxed because he's like, well, this has already gone completely off the rails, but uh, I've accepted it. I'm fine now. I, I, I honestly think that's what it is, because there's another plumber quote where he's like, I think you could tell that he just resigned himself to what this was and just said, it's a job. Yeah. I'm coming in and doing my job. Yeah. I mean, you can do a lot in an edit, but at the same time, like, there's only so much you can work with if you don't have the footage. So, well, and... Yeah, so here's the thing with the, about the footage. So, Nichols was by no stretch an action director. I mean, again, y'all heard me list off some of his filmography before this. Like, th these are more, like, low-key films. Well, and when you watch this movie, the action is not particularly exciting. Exactly. So many of the shots of the werewolf scenes and the climactic fight sequence are presented in ultra-slow motion, an indicator of how <laughs> little usable footage editor Osteen had to work with in the editing room, adding to his frustration with Mr. Nichols. <laughs> shit <laughs> for its first half wolf plays as the movie nichols wanted to make an acidic look at the savagery that lurks within a profession as outwardly genteel as publishing and about the need to become a predator in a predatory era but it gives way to the movie that he had to make an effects driven thriller shot with little flair and a tired and, un and unfocused star yeah although i i don't know that we need to call jack nicholson tired because his performance is a little bit low-key that seems mean no, it's tired because he's literally tired on set, exhausted <laughs> from this breakup. <laughs> Look, I'm working 17-hour days. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> the film's June 1994 premiere also served as an AIDS fundraiser, which I thought was an interesting um, hmm. tidbit of information. I guess we're still trying to make that AIDS metaphor into this movie. <laughs> there we go, yeah. The uh, film reached screens not long after movies like The Flintstones and City Slickers 2 were in theaters, and so most critics did give the film the benefit of the doubt for at least trying to do something adult in an increasingly right. infantilized movie season. Oh, so we were having this conversation back in 94. Interesting. Yep. Cyclical. So the film does open on June 17th, 1994. It opens in the number one spot with $17.9 million, but quickly drops. It goes on to gross $65 million domestically and $66 million <laughs> internationally for a worldwide gross of $131 million. So I won't lie. It's higher than I thought it was going to make. 
Well, the sixty-five million domestic. I mean, that's the thing. So it does that. It didn't either threaten or improve Nichols's place in an ever more competitive industry. But the sixty-five million dollars was enough to put it in the top twenty grossing films of nineteen ninety-four. There you go. Reviews were generally mixed, but not like it wasn't outright bad or good. We've got a sixty-two percent of Rotten Tomatoes with an average score of five point nine out of ten, and Letterbox users have given it a five point eight out of ten. Yeah, you gave it a four. I gave this. I'm somewhere between a two and a half and a three because I feel like there's enough interesting parts to gently recommend this movie, but I do think it's a hot mess. I and, and, and that's where my bloodline comparison is coming in because, but the, the difference between these two things is though is that as we've talked about with Bloodline many times, that film is very ambitious. It is trying mm-hmm. to do a lot. There isn't ambition here in this movie. It's just a hodgepodge of so many different things where I'm like, I don't know what this Frankenstein's monster of a movie is, but I'm Mm -hmm. fascinated by it. (laughs) Yeah, it's definitely more of a curiosity as opposed to a, you know, you must check this out. It's more like, as you said numerous times, how did this get made? How did this get made? But yeah, so that that is how Wolf came to be. A hot mess production leading to a hot mess movie that I am in love with. All right. Well, shall we talk about it? Let's talk about it. Okay. So I am going to bring in one reading for this. I was checking to see if anybody had picked up on any kind of queerness in the film. I ended up stumbling on something altogether different, but I will credit Honoria Veilmon for their piece, 21st Century Rewatch, Wolf and the Death of the Midlife Crisis Movie on Medium. Okay. Yeah. So folks who don't like it when I talk about whiteness and maleness, probably just want to turn this off now. Uh, because yeah, I'm going to talk a bunch about how this movie is kind of like a weirdly enthusiastic treatise on how white men just need to be more aggro in order to get ahead. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Come at me, Joe. <laughs> okay. So let's begin with uh will randall played by jack nicholson driving down the snowy vermont road and uh yeah he ends up hitting a wolf i will say this initial jump scare where he gets bitten is really good i quite liked it yeah it sets you up for a movie of scares that you will not get no (laughs) which is part of the problem with this first watch where i thought okay we're off to a good start Oh, I'm settling in. Okay, we're going to do a lot of publishing drama. Got it. Yes, I, I'm assuming because I know Rick Baker, he's like, it's so funny, right? Like you say, oh, Nicholson spent so much time in the makeup chair. And I was like, D-. I mean, he, mm-hmm. he has for, some fur on his face and, and he has some teeth. Like, honestly, Spader has looks like he has more makeup on his face than Nicholson does at any point in this movie. A hundred percent. But apparently Jack Nicholson is like deathly alert. Not deathly. He is extremely allergic to spirit gum, which is what you mm-hmm. would use usually used to apply some of these prosthetics spader does not have the issue which is i think why his makeup looks a little bit better whereas jack nicholson they had to apply it by hand using something different oh yeah and baker probably was like "Ugh, come on <laughs> <laughs> well apparently he tried it once because he wasn't entirely convinced that jack nicholson wasn't lying and then he showed up with hives the next day Oh, so he was telling the truth. I, I wonder what I wonder what movie Jack Nicholson was working on, or what maybe it was because they used play for spe- uh, for like beards too um, mm-hmm. in, on like stage yes. plays. But I wonder what he was working on when he learned that he was allergic to spirit gum. <laughs> right? Yeah. 
<laughs> but um i actually i i um i love the close-up shots of this wolf um the eye when it opens up and it starts looking at him i think that's all really mm-hmm. really effective well particularly because the eye which is bright 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 yellow set across this very black kind of charcoaly wolf uh, right it has a distinctively human look to it. So even when this wolf escapes into the woods and watches Jack Nicholson drive away, you very much get the impression, oh, that's a human. Like, this is a werewolf, even though we're not saying werewolf in this movie. Good Lord, we are not saying werewolf. (laughs) Aggressively anti-werewolf. Demon wolf is what we're saying in this movie. I also think the timing of this release is fascinating because, you know, 1992, we have Coppola's Dracula. This is the summer of 94. And then mm-hmm. Kenneth Branagh's Frankenstein comes out in November of 94. So, like, we're getting these, like, I mean, Wolf is much more of a loose stretch for this. But, like, we're getting sure. these kind of pseudo remakes of the universal classic monsters, uh, even though this is Columbia mm-hmm. Pictures. But I think that's such a fascinating thing. This is, of course, yeah, the loosest adaptation of this material. But it's yeah. not uh, it's not unlike that film, that original film in terms of pacing at least although you could argue that maybe not because the wolfman is probably 72 minutes long (laughs) i was gonna say except for the runtime yeah (laughs) there's no publishing in the wolfman oh have you forgotten about that complete subplot of the the publishing house (laughs) well it was in there but they cut it out and that's why it's 72 minutes long (laughs) that's how we got down to the runtime got it got it got it Okay, so Will ends up driving away. He goes home. We learn that he was there to get somebody to sign papers because, yes, he works in publishing at McLeish uh, Publishing House. And the next day when he goes into the office, we learn that he's got a kind of like posse. So he has an assistant, Mary, who is played by Eileen Atkins. And then he also has very excitable Roy, who is played by David Hyde Pierce. And these are kind of like the people who support him. They build him up. And we learn almost immediately that they are extra supportive because he is quite possibly about to be fired yeah they're like oh yeah if you leave we're gonna quit too but also Mm -hmm. he is genuinely nice he's like don't fucking do that like you you need your paycheck so while i don't necessarily buy jack nicholson as a meek sad sack character i do buy him as being genuinely like a nice person he's a nice guy yeah and everything about this movie suggests that you have to be ruthless you have to be conniving you have to undermine your competitors in order to get ahead in this ruthless world of cutthroat publishing that's the thing because yeah the whole christopher Plummer is like late in the film he's like oh i wouldn't have fired you if i knew you were this ruthless and i was like oh really that's Mm -hmm. all it takes like (laughs) yes he makes so many employment decisions on the fly (laughs) oh it's i mean he freely admits at one point alden the christopher Plummer character he says yeah you know i don't really know publishing and i'm just like yeah that's evident (laughs) by the fact that you let people hound you into getting promotions that is not the way it should work sir Oh yeah, honestly, the 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 the, one of my actual issues with this movie that I I I do care about is that Mm -hmm. James Spader isn't enough of a presence. Like he he is a slimy shithead from the get go. Yeah, but he needs to be here. Yeah, he's like for the middle chunk of this movie, he's gone, and it's like, oh Mm -hmm. no, we need this. We need him in this movie more. Yeah, we we need the reminder of what Will is fighting against, or why he might be leaning into the wolfy evil side. But that's because we're so focused on, like, just about his 
struggle with the transformation in general that it becomes more of a solo film for a good chunk of it yeah yeah well we'll get there <laughs> so the other person on will's side is author Maud wiggins who is played by prunella scales and yeah so they all say that they will leave the company if uh he ends up getting fired that night and the boss raymond alden is doing it at this party at his house which is very unorthodox so it's kind of like it's kind of what elon musk did his uh twitter employees where it was like if you get an email on friday afternoon you're still with the company or you've been fired yeah so it's like oh hey everyone come to this party and we're gonna you're gonna find out if you have a job or not <laughs> yeah i guess like the concession is that if you don't have a job at least you got a fancy dinner fuck you i guess so also though i want this mansion so actually i want the grounds for this mansion because oh for sure mm -hmm. michelle pfeiffer's cottage is so adorable that that needs to right? that would be an airbnb right now what a great space okay okay but we're not there <laughs> So I'm going to bring in a Veilmon for the first time here. And part okay. of the way that they look at Will as a character or what this film is saying via the way that Will interacts with particularly female characters is that he is kind of a dinosaur, but the film is on his side in his misogyny and his kind of antiquated backwards notions. Do you find him misogynistic? Well follow along on the ride and i'll see if i can okay. convince you so veilman says one of the things that will got into trouble for is saying no semi-literate 14 year old would read judith krantz and judith krantz is a real life author so this is actually a reference oh. to real life events and she is a best-selling author and her novels have been described as sex and shopping by the new york times and that means that her audience is primarily women and will is throughout the film, repeatedly referenced as a man of taste and individuality. So he describes himself as that, and so does Alden. And that means that he doesn't like authors such as Judith Krantz. So basically, he doesn't like pop culture, and he doesn't like women's issues. And it's like, okay, so you're like a man's man. Got it. Oh, I, I guess he does give that little monologue, too. I, I, yeah. <laughs> I have about <laughs> 10 more examples. Well, I think I'm going to dictate, but I'll read this one. He's like, you can make a case that the world has already ended, that art is dead and we are exhausted, that instead of art, we have pop culture, daytime TV, gay senior citizens, women who've been raped by their dentists confiding in Oprah. <laughs> mm -hmm. An exploration in depth of why women cut off their husband's penis. And then... <laughs> But this is some of the comedy really works for me because then we just cut to the people looking at him. And this one woman's face is just like, <gasps> yeah, but like, that's what I think is so weird. Because a this is very off putting commentary, like this is not appropriate right. for a fancy dinner party like the one that he's at. But also it belies any kind of awareness of what's actually happening. So it confirms that he's like the character in a Hallmark movie who doesn't want to change or grow with the times right which is why i think this movie is actually advocating that it's like oh the best kind of people are the people you should cheer for your protagonist your hero are these old white men who refuse to grow or evolve right which is like a very weird message well it's it's look i think that's again god right 
I would have. I want to see what Harrison's original draft is like because I wonder if more mm-hmm. of that is in his draft. And Elaine May like nixed a lot of that because she's like, um, I'm a woman and I'm offended by this. <laughs> I don't know because it, you you'd almost expect that if this is who the character is and the film is presenting it as a problem, like he's going to get right. bitten by this wolf and then he's going to change and become something different that will help him. You would think that we would see him making a kind of personality change or like he would shift to become more open-minded or more approachable or more in tune with like women's issues or issues of the day we don't see that happen in this film no he's just not jack Nick jickelson he's just jack Jack he is he's just jack nicholson (laughs) he's just jack nicholson through and through (laughs) Mm -hmm. anyway we don't need to belabor the point but i'll bring it up a couple more times and we can sort of touch base Totally fine. But you're forgetting, um, who is a early screen role ca- cameo, a uh, appearance that we get here, but none other than Allison Janney, who gets a line. Yeah, she gets a line. I don't think this character has a name. <laughs> it's party guest number two, I think. Oh, God. Yeah. So in between these scenes, we have been introduced to James Spader, Stuart Swinton, which is a hell of a name. Okay, I guess. <laughs> so his initials are SS. Got it. And we also visit his doctor, who is is played by Ron Rifkin, who, of course, you and I know from Alias. Yes, 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 yes. But this is, to me, like one of those moments where the comedy does work. So he gets a rabies shot from the doctor, and the doctor tells him about, like, oh, there's been a spate of animal bites that I've been treating over the last little while. And he mentions a friend who was bitten by a snake and got brain damage, and Will goes, oh, is he okay? And the doctor just goes, no, he has brain damage. (laughs) And I was like, what is this kooky comedy? Like, I'm kind of here for this right now. But there's, again, not enough of it. No, but but so much of the comedy, yes, that is intentional comedy. But there's a lot of unintentional comedy in this movie. Again, Mm -hmm. I think unintentional, as I will defer back to my original Letterboxd review, where I'm like, I don't know what they were trying to do (laughs) with so much of this movie. Yeah, a lot of it really does feel like we threw 18 different drafts in spaghetti form against the fridge, and we're just going to see which one sticks. Yes. (laughs) okay so will gets called outside and this is where alden more or less confirms that yes he is being fired so it it's kind of funny that he doesn't say it in those words he just says well i think there's some really interesting work going on in eastern europe so i think you might want to take an interest look at that eastern europe (laughs) yeah like do you think that this is a a gentle nod to the kind of like origins of folklore of werewolves and that's that kind that's of stuff? what i was because i because i mean i know transylvania is not real but like transylvania was like it was like generally speaking in eastern europe right mm-hmm. yeah so i th- that that has to be my thought process too but at the same time it's also maybe a bit of a classist thing where it's like oh yeah because they, they, they refer to this as the job that no one would ever want because you're in right. eastern europe which is a low class place to be yeah i mean this movie is absolutely making a class critique it's a gentle one but yeah you know Will is very rich because when his wife leaves him and he moves out of their stunning apartment, he moves into a hotel that he can afford to stay at indefinitely that has a view of Central Park. (laughs) So, like, he's not hurting for money. Oh, his poor wife, man. Oh, God. I, yeah. Charlotte. We'll get to her. We'll get to her. Okay. So, yeah, he's more or less been fired. And Alden also 
more or less tells him that Stuart is the one who got his job because he, quote, nagged him day and night. Well, okay, so I guess this is the thing, right? Because, like, Jack Nicholson does not give off Meek in this movie. However, no. In the scene when he confronts Stuart, instead of just being like, dude, this guy fucking told me that you nagged him for this job. Why are you lying in my face? He mm-hmm. doesn't say any of those things. So, again, this is the script doing the work, but it is completely opposite from whatever Jet Nicholson's demeanor is in this film. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, and James Spader is playing it very cagey. So every interaction that we have with Stuart early in the film is him being like, oh, I'm really sorry for you. If you don't want me to take it, just tell me, yes. you know, I'll, I'll totally do it. So he's gaslighting Will to the umpteenth degree. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you're right. Like Will just kind of goes, huh? And then leaves every time. He's like, the, I, I'm not, the, I'm not the person that can tell you to do this. Or he's like, it's ethically wrong. Or is this something along those lines? I'm like, dude, just tell mm-hmm. him that you know he stole your job. <laughs> yeah, this is the closest we get to meekness. He's afraid to confront or introduce conflict with anybody who disagrees with him. Yeah, pretty much. So we do have a, a moment where we have a horse who gets very startled <laughs> because of Will, and he ends up having a panic attack. This is where we're introduced to Laura Alden, played by Michelle Pfeiffer, and she offers him her drink, which he consumes entirely, and then he gets up and falls onto her boobs because he's still unsteady. <laughs> and um, I mean, it's it's amusing, but it's also again like this antiquated notion where he says well you don't have to be worried because he's married so uh that means that it's like perfectly safe and she's like no because she's a very modern woman and she she very clearly understands married men can make passes at women like it happens all the time she, she she lore is such a fascinating character for me I, mm-hmm. all credit to elaine may for punching up this role because i shudder to think what this would have been like without her involvement but right lore is a spitfire i fucking love her yeah like she she is definitely interested in like repartee when it comes to witty banter like i i love the relationship that she has with her father that's gently antagonistic like i know exactly what i'm doing i'm only doing it to piss you off well, and we find out much later that she was like a drug addict delinquent. She's like your typical mm-hmm. like rich like rich heiress woman <laughs> who's like I'm rich. She's a bad girl, but I mean, yes. yeah, she has the means and the privilege to be bad and, you know, ooh no, she just gets to stay in the guest house when she needs to come home. <laughs> Well, yeah, because she hates her father because she's she's a cool she's not a regular girl, she's a cool girl. Yeah, exactly. She's a cool badass. Okay. So yeah, we we get Will confronting Stuart and him just kind of lying about it until he's exposed as a liar and then it's fine because Will won't confront him. And then in the car ride home, Will's wife Charlotte, who we've not mentioned is played by Kate Nelligan, she berates him. Like she's like, "Why do you let Stuart just walk all over you? Why didn't you say something?" And he's just like, Meh. "I will say, I actually did not see her affair with Stuart coming at all. I I thought that they were going to be fine." <laughs> Oh, really? No, I totally called it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, I called it about 10 seconds before it was revealed. For sure. sure. Well, it's not really telegraphed that she's having an affair. They seem like an okay couple who maybe haven't been intimate in a while. Well, yeah, we know that for sure. But, you know, then he like, you know, 
gets horny because he's wolfed out. Sure. So uh, he ends up spending the rest of the next day in bed. And of course, you could confuse this for depression because he's just been fired. But when he wakes up, he feels excellent. So the next example that he doesn't really care very much about women is that when he goes for dinner with his wife, she starts to tell him about this piece she's a a writer for a magazine Mm -hmm. and she's talking about how she was delegated a women's issue and she was like well why don't you get the man to write it and i'll write the the sports piece and he literally like will just interrupts her so that he can talk about his own issues and it's like okay you don't even care about your wife got it Ah, uh, yeah, I guess. I <laughs> I mean, yes, that is damning, damning evidence. But I'm also just kind of like, but I think I just got fired, man. I, oh my God, I'm making, I'm making, I'm <laughs> making so excuses for the misogynist. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? She's cheating on him. This is true. Yeah, so, um, I mean, they do get down to some foreplay because, of course, one of the symptoms of werewolfism is that you always get horny. <laughs> Lycanthropy. Share. Werewolfism. <laughs> sorry demon wolfism wolfism (laughs) uh we also get this brief moment where he sees that hair is growing out of the bite on his palm which i thought was an interesting touch but it also goes nowhere because we never reference it again he doesn't even have to hide the wound when he goes into the office well he shaves it and it's fine the end of subplot right it it just it suggests (laughs) that it would keep happening as he gets closer to wolfing out (laughs) No, we have more corporate espionage in this publishing house. Oh, my God. Were you getting younger flashbacks watching all of this, by the way? Oh, my God. I literally have in my notes. It's basically younger. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Watch younger, everybody. Uh, Yeah, I mean, it's it's fun, but it's very it's very shallow entertainment. You know what? It's pop. It's pop entertainment, Trace. It is. Oh, my God. God, what does he tell him exactly? Yeah, he's like, uh, oh, taste and individuality are something of a handicap in today's modern era. Yeah, it's um, it's wild. (laughs) He basically is a dinosaur. He's caught in amber. Well, but it's it's not. Here's the thing, though, because it's funny because you and you and me were podcasters talking about film. And it's a thing Mm -hmm. where it's like. They're telling him, hey, you're liking all these cool, like, not cool, but like these quote unquote legitimately good things that aren't sellable. We need someone who wants to, who's going to get something that's popular. Yeah, which is literally the plot of a Hallmark Christmas movie I watched this year. Of course it is. We should only be publishing classic works. I don't care if they sell. Isn't that You've Got Mail too? Uh, Yes, it is. Yeah. Okay, okay, go on. Okay, so before he galvanizes the team and decides he's going to go to war against his boss and Stuart, because who could care, we do get this kind of, it's not a montage, but it's a collection of scenes where he realizes that his senses have been dramatically heightened. So he can smell better, he can hear better, he can see further. And I will say this office space is gorgeous. Oh, it's great. So, yeah, he smells tequila on this guy's breath, which has, of course, become way important later for the final mm-hmm. moments of the film. My sure. favorite bit was when he yeah, he walks out of the office, starts listening to people, and his ears start twitching like a dog. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
they apparently had special uh like a special application that rick baker made so that the ears could twitch to prove that he was uh increasing his senses what oh that's i didn't know that that's awesome because i mean i don't think jack nicholson can actually wiggle his ears no i yeah (laughs) (laughs) but yes office space is gorgeous honestly his office looks the worst out of this entire like stairwell tower of offices that they're in Mm-hmm. It's very tiny, which is perhaps telling about his lowly position until he gets right. this massive raise and so on. Yeah. Okay, so in this section, he also asks Gary, who is the person who has tequila on his breath, played by Stuart J. Zully. He asks him to find him an expert on animal possession, and this is revealed to be Dr. Vijay Alize. Who will meet for one scene in our magical yeah. Indian character scene. <laughs> oh, boy. Yep. Yeah, we'll get there in a little bit. But it should be noted that when he decides that he's going to go to war, because after he discovers that Charlotte has been fucking Stuart, he's like, okay, fine, fuck everybody. I'm done being emasculated. I'm going to harness my wolfy energy. So (laughs) he makes this plan that he's going to poach a bunch of writers and he's going to start a new publishing house. And it's, it's just so ridiculous it's almost sitcommy the way that mary and roy react to this she's like well it's about time and roy is like you're a god yes See, I'm into all of this. I love all of this fucking corporate drama. I mean, corporate, whatever. whatever. It's so, it's not the movie that I came to see. (laughs) But I still really, really like it. I'm like, yes, man, get get them. Get Stuart. I'm going to get you, Stuart. I'm going to get you, Stuart. God, it's the best (laughs) fucking comeback I've ever heard in my life. It's so good. But we'll get there. (laughs) Okay, so this is when Will goes to Alden's estate so that he can personally tell him he's not accepting the offer, which seems to impress Alden, but then Alden also says, well, I expected that, which is weird. I wasn't really sure how we were meant to read the reaction. And then Will ends up startling Laura's horse, so she ends up falling off and she's (laughs) basically concussed for a short period of time. But this is when we've, this is, we've already had a meet cute between her and Jack Nicholson, but this is when they finally come together because her, her, her daddy invites her to dinner and she's like, oh, no, sorry, I've got to go get dinner with this guy over here. Yeah, they're going to have peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Um, that's camp. That is camp. Jack Nicholson and Michelle Pfeiffer eating peanut butter and jelly and drinking milk on a date. <laughs> I mean, I think to a certain extent, it confirms this idea that she is being infantilized by her father, as well as I don't buy for a second that she doesn't have anything better there. It's just that she didn't really want to invite him to lunch. She just wanted to piss her father off. So she was like, yeah, come for PB&J. And then, of course, Will accepts. But again, this scene between them, again, no chemistry, but I still really mm-hmm. like their interactions, like their dialogue back and forth. Because like, this is when Laura proves that she's not someone to fuck with. Yeah, but we do have to get some very deeply misogynistic language first. So allow me to read Will's speech to her. So he makes observations about how beautiful she is and how she uses that beauty. Here we go. You know, I think I understand what you're like now. You're very beautiful, and you think men are only interested in you because you're beautiful. But you want them to be interested in you because you're you. The problem is, aside from all that beauty, you're not very interesting. You're rude. You're hostile. You're sullen. You're withdrawn. I know you want someone to look past all of that at the real person underneath, but the only reason anyone would bother to look past all that is because you're beautiful. 
ironic, isn't it? In an odd way, you're your own problem. Hey, so I'm not even going to push back at that and against the misogyny, but like I, I also think that's more of a statement on how society views women at the time, more so than how Will views women. Uh, I think it's both. Okay, y- yes, it can be both. <laughs> If only because he has a pattern of behavior where he he really just does not care about women for the most part. I I think we don't know enough about Laura at this point to have an understanding whether right. what he's saying is kind of true or how it rings for her. You know, what follows ends up being a really heartfelt conversation. Like she opens up about her dead brother who by the way, is Justin Kirk in those photos? The guy from Weeds and a couple of other things. Are you serious? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, we don't get to meet the brother because he died by suicide, uh, what, last year? Yeah, it's the year before. Yes. I think part of it is that it's partially used to try to explain, like, it, it's a character backstory for her. We don't really understand anything more about why that mattered to her but it does help us to understand that she's kind of attracted to quote-unquote tragic or wounded figures like i saw a couple of quotes from michelle pfeiffer that says she plays the character as though she is interested in wounded animals which is one of the reasons why she gravitates to will yeah well unfortunately we don't really have enough time because this is the only mention of her brother that we get and we already know that we don't that she doesn't like her father so the only familial connection that she really had was with her brother, who mm-hmm. kills himself the year before. So it, 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 it's slight, but it at least does give you a better inclination of what her headspace is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it explains why she's there and why she might be open to somebody who is actually interested in her for her. Right. But then, okay, so her her next decision is to bring her, is to bring Will to the place where she buried all of her pets. <laughs> and then be like this is when i realized i was gonna die one day but then that opens the door for him to be like well let me tell you about this wolf (laughs) that bit me (laughs) (laughs) it is a bit of a rocky transition and then also because it's starting to get dark because they've you know they've connected they've spent the day together the wolfiness is starting to take over so he has another kind of fainting spell and then she puts him to bed yeah it's cute (laughs) i mean it's cute but it's also wait so we're meant to buy that they're falling in love but also she's very motherly to him and it's like the age discrepancy really makes the scene a little weird for me okay who the fuck is ages now joe (laughs) i think it's a deliberate decision by the film like there's a moment where she tells her father yes i picked him because he is old and i knew you wouldn't approve yeah but honestly this to me is when will is the creepiest though because he so he's he's lying in bed she's like you know motherlying him and Mm -hmm. he's like don't don't be offended by this but you're a very beautiful woman. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, dude, you made that whole speech about how people only see her as beautiful. And because she's not complicated, she fucking opens up about all this personal shit. And then he resorts back to, well, you're yes. beautiful. Yes. <laughs> it's like, Will, you suck. Laura, you are smarter than this. <laughs> yes. Laura, girl, you can do better. Come on. So in the middle of the night, we see it's a full moon and Will 
awakens as a werewolf. So he's got the prosthetics on. He's got a big smile on his face. And he leaps out the window in slow motion before chasing down a doe, biting and snapping its neck. This is great. Right after this, we get the transition to like, you know, it's like a foggy marsh where Will Mm -hmm. is like passed out on. This looks like, if you put a black and white filter over this, it could have been from one of those Universal Monster movies. Oh. Yeah, I mean, to me, this looks very stagey. Like, it's very clearly a set and not a natural Mm. location. But Mm -hmm. I think it plays well into the Universal comparisons, for sure. Yes, yes. And I actually do let me... The slow motion, the jumping, honestly, it is a... It is a little silly. It is a little silly. Yeah. But him biting into that deer's throat and just snapping its neck. I mean, that is... Mm-hmm. Oh, boy, man. that That's some rough shit. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of the animal effects actually look good. Like, when he's chasing it, it they apparently use, like, six deer and one animatronic robot and various other things to achieve all of these sequences. But, oh. like, apart from the egregious slow motion, which Nichols relies on way too heavily in this movie... There is something compelling about him chasing down a doe and killing it. There, there is a, sh- there's a single shot because I, you know, normally this I'm like, okay, they got a real deer, they're shooting the deer, and they're going to shot reverse shot between the deer and you know Nicholson. But there's a shot you where make it sound the- like they're having a conversation. <laughs> yes, exactly that. Um, <laughs> no, but there's, there's a shot where they're both in the same frame together, and the deer like leaps over this creek, and so does Nicholson. And I was like, yeah, that's really cool. How do they get that shot to the point where if you look at it, you can actually see Nicholson almost loses his foot as he lands because it's like he is into it yes yes <laughs> i thought because i was excited i was like i saw the same fucking thing <laughs> i saw it too we did watch the same movie <laughs> oh my god <laughs> no but i mean i think the reason we both reacted to it is because this is kind of the first moment where we're we're fully doing the wolf thing and this is the movie that we wanted to watch because it's, and it's called wolf and it's like an hour into the movie <laughs> yes now, just in case you thought I wasn't done talking about Will's weird misogynistic issues, oh, okay. I'm bringing back Veilmon, and they say, in case you need a highly symbolic version of this particular man-woman dynamic, after Will's first heart-to-heart with Laura, he feels compelled to go into the woods, find a doe, rip her throat out. He wakes up in the forest smeared with blood in a way that, if he were a woman in film, would clearly be coded as a sexual awakening. Uh, I just read it as, like, cum on his face, but, like, you know, blood. (laughs) So blood and not cum at all? Yeah, but, like, you know, it was like he got a facial. He got a a blood facial. Right. (laughs) My sexual appetite resulted in... I'm reaching a little bit, but a little bit. I will admit that just for this brief moment. God. So in the morning, he wakes up and yes, he is covered in blood and he's by this stream with this body and he does not even try to explain himself. He just washes his face in the creek, gets in that car and drives the fuck away. But it's this that he, where he's like, all right, I got a plan for my corporate espionage. I'm going to win my job bat motherfucker yeah so he stops by the doctor quickly the doctor says i want to run tests and will and the movie both say fuck you we're done with this subplot so (laughs) yes he goes into work and this is where alden and his lawyer are now threatening that you know this isn't gonna work your your grand plans we know what you're doing and will says 
well, it doesn't matter if it works. All I have to do is damage the business's reputation badly enough. And then Alden caves then and there. He decides to give him his job back with more money and more power. It's the, the ease with which this happens is mm-hmm. remarkable. I was like, dude, you're not even being that ruthless. You're just like, no. <laughs> you're just saying a few things. <laughs> you're basically making mildly inflammatory remarks, making vague threats. And apparently Alden is so out of his depth in the publishing world that he has to take this seriously, even though his lawyer is literally saying, no, don't do this. No, we're going to do it. We're going to do it. We're going to do it. Give him, give him do it. whatever we're the fuck he it. wants. Steward who? Because Will is a fucking man now, Trace. Okay, so he may also be turning into a wolf. So he does decide to keep his date with Dr. Alizaeus, who is played by Ompuri in a lot of makeup, apparently, to age him about 20 years. I, I thought that, okay, because I, because, okay, so Joe, I <laughs> literally first thought, I was like, is this a white guy in Indian makeup? Because the makeup was so mm. heavy. <laughs> it, it is very heavy. Thankfully, I looked it up. But yeah, he is an actual Indian actor. But um, the moment in this scene where I was like, why is this in here? Is when he asks for honey. And then he's like, oh, I have no honey. <laughs> yeah. And it's, I was like, well, this is like 30 seconds of, of screen time that we could just cut out of this movie. <laughs> I mean, if you want my extreme reach, everything that Dr. Alizaeus is saying, you know, he basically offers a bunch of insight, even though he clarifies he's not the right person to be administering this because he's not a shaman. He's more on the research side of it. But he does offer Will a bunch of like rules that he should abide by and like, how is this wolf thing happening? But he also very clearly says that he is part of a dying tribe and he himself is dying. And in exchange for this information, he would like a bite so that he may live, which Will says no to because Will also does not care about indigenous issues. But the honey thing, I was like, (laughs) oh, is that just a further symbol of like, well, I've got this thing, but it's dying out. And nobody cares. Uh, That's a reach. I felt really bad though that he did not bite this man. I was like, dude, come on, just bite him on the arm. Who the who gives a fuck? Well, I I took it to be that getting bit and turning into the wolf is a dangerous thing, right? Like we don't just want to go around biting people because we don't know how they'll react. But the simple fact that this is the only scene this character is in, and he basically shows up to yeah, be like the equivalent of a magical negro character like a a mystical indian who dispenses knowledge one scene makes a request denied goodbye out of this movie out of the movie (laughs) i did also want to make note that uh dr alizaeus he specifies the date that will was bit on which is march 8th so the reason it's important is because in the world of the film, that's when the moon is closest to the earth, blah, blah, blah. Sure. But uh, March 8th is also International Women's Day. So uh, Valamon <laughs> thought that was p- particularly amusing. Uh, all of our, our all of our women listeners out there, please let us know. Uh, how, how did Wolf make you feel like an empowered woman? <laughs> <laughs> did it make you want to bite a white older man? Honestly, that's me on a daily basis. Just going around biting older white men? Basically, yeah. That's my thing and everybody knows it. Okay, so Will calls Laura and she's mad that he didn't you know he just kind of wandered off without letting her know that he was okay but she easily accepts his apology and they make plans to meet at his hotel the next day 
And mm-hmm. in the night, he goes to the zoo where he upsets the animal. And we get a cameo appearance by police officer Ross. Not the character's name, but he is played by David Schwimmer. So that is what we shall call him. Man, this would have this would have been released, I think, during Friends' second season. So that is just... No, it's before Friends debuted. So it's like right before he breaks out. Oh, wait, really? I don't know why I thought Friends was 1993. It's like a month. Like, yeah. <laughs> but were you not getting cat people vibes from this scene? Oh, 100%. To the point where I thought, oh, are they savvy enough that they're referencing that? And I hope the answer is yes. Honestly, I don't I don't think that's the case, Joe. I don't think Mike Nichols has seen cat people. <laughs> I mean, here's the thing. Let's be generous and say that it probably is because, you know, we've talked about how this film seems to be gently talking mm-hmm. or in conversation with the Universal Monster films. And cat people is of the same era, although right. obviously it's an RKO production. I mean, that's... That- Sure. You know what? Fine. That's fair. Because honestly, the, even the next scene where, where where Will is being stalked by some thugs into a tunnel mm-hmm. is kind of, kind of reminiscent of the, the pre-bus like stalking sequence in Cat People. Yeah. So the, this is another not great scene in this movie. I, I like the payoff later when we get to the precinct, but this movie is very white. It's 1994. So I don't know that we can give it as much leeway but um not a lot of people of color in this film trace but we do have three black thugs who want his wallet in this scene and that's great i thought all thugs were black is that not true that's what movies tell me and we're canceled thank you goodbye yeah this is just so tokenistic and stereotypical i was like really we're gonna do this okay yeah, it's it's fine. I, honestly, stylistically, I think my, my I just I like the the final bit of it where it's like, oh, the final attack. It's all in silhouette mm-hmm. as we see the shadows yeah. up against the tunnel wall. I do like that. Yeah, and and you're right. That is actually quite similar to Cat People in that regard. Oh yeah, shadow, shadow, shadows, man. Okay, so uh, we very much get the impression he doesn't remember most of this, but it's important that he did get the handcuffs from the police officer. So, next morning, Will goes in, he signs the documents, officially back at the company, with promotion, with money, with power. (laughs) So he visits Stuart in the men's room to mark his territory by pissing asparagus pee on his suede shoes. I mean, this... Okay, I know it's like a brief scene in a Mm two-hour and five-minute movie, but oh... Mm -hmm. My God. Also, because we get a POV shot that's almost like it's from the penis itself. As yes. he pees yellow liquid. Yep. <laughs> penis POV? <laughs> I just like... And again, because... you Do you think this film is trying to be prestige? I do, yes. So, we have a movie that... Uh, maybe, maybe is trying to be a prestige satire horror thing and we have jack and we have jack nicholson just pissing on james spader's shoes yeah it's full stream too he he just yeah. turns and pees directly like here's my dick i'm pissing on your shoes well because because james spader is mid like bag mid bag like oh my god please keep me higher and then he just starts pissing on him mm-hmm <laughs> It's it's very satisfying to the point that I wanted actually even more from this interaction. Oh, yeah. Like, take your pants off and shit on it. Like, projectile shit all over him. 
Uh, I don't know that wolves do a lot of shit throwing, but um, projectile shit. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, the follow-up movie, Ape. I mean, that, well, you know what? We're gonna get a sequel with Michelle Pfeiffer clearly being a wolf. I mean, I'm not gonna lie. There, the scenes at the end of this movie where her eyes change color, I thought oh wow this is kind of like if michelle pfeiffer had a cinematic universe of ladies changing into animals so it's this and lady hawk right i, I wonder if she even did anything between this because i i saw an interview with her where she was like oh yeah i took this movie because i didn't want to be in a corset i didn't want to be in a costume i wanted to be just in modern clothes and i was like you know what mm -hmm. good for you <laughs> yeah so after Stuart leaves, Will ends up discovering, yes, he's got a bloody handkerchief as well as two black fingers <laughs> in his pocket. Two black fingers! <laughs> he seems mighty upset by them too, but, you know. Which is good, right? Because you wouldn't want him to just be kind of flippant, although he never investigates. Like, we don't see him go back to the crime scene and realize, oh shit, I maybe killed those dudes. Like, do you think that he has no memory of what he's done the night before and that's why he has these panicked reactions? Yes, I think that's the case because that's why we're supposed to buy into the fact that whenever Charlotte is found murdered later, he uh, doesn't yeah. know if he did it or not. Which is hilarious because as soon as we see him bite James Spader, it's like, oh, okay, well, we know where this is going. So that that that's another issue I have with this because it's like you see it and, and the movie goes out of its way to be like, that's an issue. But then we don't address it again for, I want to say, another hour of the film. Yeah, no, I, I thought the film actively wanted us to forget. Like, we might question, ooh, did Jack Nicholson actually kill his wife? Ooh, I was like... No, you showed us the bite earlier. I think I think that's the case. And I you know, I, oh, it's almost I, I don't play it as a mystery or don't show us the bite and then do a flashback later to be like, "Oh, like here here's the scene but like in full where we where you get to see what actually happened where he bites him." <laughs> um yeah, it's it's that that, that is I want to say lazy screenwriting, but three or four people worked on this screenplay, so they just missed it. <laughs> I don't know. I I think they thought it was clever and like it would be for savvy viewers, maybe for genre viewers who would know what the implication was. But by not referencing it, it seemed like they wanted it to be a reveal later. Like, ah, you forgot about this, but now we're bringing it back. It, you're 100% right. Like the movie, I don't think it, it's even that the movie wants us to forget about it. I think the movie thinks that we forgot about it. And any right. sav any moderately savvy viewer will be like, well, mm -hmm. James Spader's going to be a wolf. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so Will makes his way back to the hotel. He is confronted in the lobby by Charlotte, who pleads with him that she has made a mistake and that it didn't actually mean anything when she fucks Stuart and possibly helped him to plan his takeover and get Will fired. I was it's just unclear. like, I'm sorry, Charlotte. I feel nothing for you. Oh, yeah. He is a strict fuck off from him. As it should be. Oh, yeah. So he goes up to his room and because it's becoming dark and he's like ah shit i remember i made that date with laura but i'm gonna turn into a wolf he handcuffs himself to the radiator and then we get this really good michelle pfeiffer moment where she picks the lock and talks about like her troubled past and that kind of stuff and it's good stuff and then they fuck and then they fuck and then he runs outside and howls at the moon this okay. <laughs> joe how did this get made <laughs> Uh, I mean, I could see people shooting this and saying, maybe we'll keep it. If it doesn't work, we'll just get rid of it. And then somebody saying, no, I think we need more wolf stuff. So you got to keep it, 
even though it's very silly. It's because they're thinking to themselves, well, in about 30 years, there's going to be a queer horror podcast that's going to talk about this movie. <laughs> and they're going to want to mention this scene specifically and how stupid it is. <laughs> yeah, if it was us or literally, how did this get made, the podcast? It was a race to see who would cover it first. I think we did. Although I do think that We Hate Movies covered this. Oh, I could see that too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, so um, we don't get to see the fucking, unfortunately. So unfortunately, yes, the weird sex in this movie is off screen. But I stand by my statement yeah. that it's probably weird sex. I mean, I would, I would like to, but I think part of this is that I know what weird sex with a wolf looks like because we've already seen Bram Stoker's Dracula at this yeah. point. And that is good weird sex. That is good weird sex. That is full on like wolf sex in that movie. Yeah. <laughs> Mm -hmm. you know what we might have to do that film just because of that oh we, yes yeah, yes yes we will uh, we will cover this and we will even cover kenneth brenner's frankenstein because why oh, the fuck Jesus, not? must we <laughs> it's you know it's fine it's it's very brenner oh i mean that's not selling me on it wait oh you haven't seen it oh um well helena bottom carter gets her heart ripped out and you get to see that in full screen Okay. You know what? I will accept it then. <laughs> but no, it's very much aping on the Coppola's Dracula. So it's yeah, it's oh, not as good. Yeah. Yeah. So Will ends up back in bed in time to be awoken by new character Detective Bridger, who is played by the one and only Richard Jenkins. Showing up about, what, 90 minutes into this two hour movie? <laughs> Indeed. This very much feels like, okay, we've introduced murder, so we probably need to have police officers, but also we don't know what to do with them. I mean, here's the thing. I'm not I'm never going to turn down a Richard Jenkins appearance. And this no. is early Jenkins, so he's not even like a character actor by this point, but whatever. Like watching this now, I'm like, Richard Jenkins, yay. Mm -hmm. The movie doesn't need these police detectives necessarily. It probably would be better service if we just went straight into the Stuart Laura Will thing. But yeah. it's fine, it's, I guess. It's okay. I like the precinct stuff. I don't like this scene where he's basically interrogating Will without a lawyer. And Laura is smart enough to say, stop answering questions. Oh, yeah. She is a sm one smart cookie. And, of course, this is all because uh, Charlotte was killed last night in the park. She had her throat ripped out. Which, again, any person's like, well, that was James Spader. <laughs> mm -hmm. But also off screen because they don't want to show us who did it so you're just like cool tell us the character got killed but don't show us yeah but I mean, i'm not bothered by that miss because again I, this is a horror movie but that's not really the movie's focus even though it should be no. but it's not but they do focus it at the end but it's not it's <laughs> <laughs> how did this get made joe oh boy by a, a team of monkeys with many typewriters <laughs> oh my god okay so the detectives basically say, well, we're going to need you to come in and make statements, but they have lied about who Laura is. And then they kind of beat a hasty retreat out of there. Laura offers to hide him at her place. So he hops in the car and she's driving. She notices that there's dirt on his shoes trace. So ooh, he might have committed the murder and now she's getting scared. I guess so. Th th this kind of turned me off a little bit because I was like, well, it seems like up until this point, she's been relatively open to the idea mm -hmm. that he might be a werewolf. 
Yeah, I wonder if we're meant to believe that she was interested in him and because of her relationship with her brother, she was willing to believe him, even though she didn't really believe him. She believed that he believed it. Yes, not that he actually was becoming a wolf. Right. But but it, it, I actually, because Pfeiffer gives a really good performance from this. I mean, she, she always gives a good performance in this movie, but from this mm-hmm. performance, she's really has, she really has to be on. <laughs> like, yeah. full on watery eyes, almost crying for a lot of the rest of this movie. Yes. I like following her for the rest of this film, because honestly, yeah, Will is in a cage until the very, very end of this movie. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is where the film actually starts to take off if you're interested in it as a bit of a genre property, because right. suddenly we've got a female protagonist stepping into the limelight, she's in danger, and it there's some wackiness to the proceedings, but there's very much the threat that, yeah, like, James Bader is going to murder this woman if she's not careful. But it's because okay, okay. but during all of this, we also have flat not flashbacks, but cutaways. It's like James Spader with Christopher Plummer, like watching the news report of Charlotte's death. Like, well, mm-hmm. God, um, I, I really hope Will's contract is still valid if he, you know, goes to jail. <laughs> I love it. His eyes are already wolfed out. <laughs> yes, I have it in my notes. It's Stuart with giant wolf contacts in all caps. <laughs> but, but at least Christopher Palmer does, like, address him. He's like, oh, because you want his job, right? And he's like, well, mm-hmm. I mean, like, you know, um, I don't know, maybe kind of a little bit, but give me the job. Yeah. I mean, it, it's wild to me that Stuart seems to have a better capacity on his emotions and even, like, his consciousness when he's in his wolf form compared to will who seems to just yeah have these blackouts but like Stuart is getting shit done even as he is completely unraveling but but that but that's what mr um, magical indian man was saying though he's like because <laughs> he's evil he's already an evil person so i think he yes. has a greater grasp of the control he can have over this wolf but okay what would have made the climax better i'm not, I'm not gonna jump ahead but just in general because mm-hmm. you know we mm-hmm. have the whole thing where it's like, oh the wolf will eventually take over and we do see yes. that with jack nicholson at the end of this film correct what like we needed a wolf to bust out of james spader's face Ooh, that would have been fun huh like i i a we know red baker can fucking do it but Mm -hmm. i feel like mike nichols was like well that's not really my kind of movie that i'm making right now (laughs) i'm actually more interested in the psychological wolf within the man and we have to get back to this publishing drama you know i gotta make sure that will has his job still maybe i don't know maybe (laughs) ask me tomorrow yeah let's let's really wrap up the corporate intrigue before we get into the rapey shit okay oh god okay okay so the rapey shit begins at this police precinct and Mm -hmm. i love love this interaction between James Spader and Michelle Pfeiffer when she's like did you get bit and he's just like mm-hmm. what an odd question to ask someone <laughs> <laughs> and then he smells her pussy he literally smells her pussy before he goes into this uh into the statement yeah <laughs> James Spader is the secret MVP of this movie. Michelle Pfeiffer is keeping the whole thing together. Yep. But when James Spader gets to come back and do all of this fun shit, because he is still yuppie James Spader that we know and love from the early to mid 90s, but he's playing creepy camp and it's delightfully entertaining. 
so much fun. And again, but and it's you don't want James Spader and Michelle Pfeiffer to get together, but they have an electric chemistry oh. between their opposition. Yes. So much more so than she has with Jack Nicholson in this movie. Ah, <laughs> uh, but that's the problem, right? You're yeah. like, wait, you want us to root for Jack Nicholson and Michelle Pfeiffer when we've got this fucking electric chemistry between the yes. bad guy and her? Like, yes. it doesn't work. The movie is undermined. I, I just, like, oh, God. Like, like again, it's, it, it sucks in this two hour and five minute movie, this amazing, just two minute scene between these two actors who were just giving it their all and you're like god that needs to be in more of this movie mm-hmm, mm-hmm. there's an energy here that just like this is really to me i i was honestly getting a little dozy and kind of sleepy up until this point and this scene at the precinct all of a sudden it snapped me back into focus and i was on board for the entire rest of the film but it does i mean look again i, I am acknowledging all the faults this movie has i totally get it this is not a movie that everyone's going to like but I will admit that this last 20-ish minutes feels like it's in a completely different film than everything we have seen before. Yeah, the problem is, is that this is the good film that I wanted to watch. But again, based on the production history, this isn't the film that other people thought was good. It was the stuff in the first half of the movie that people liked. <laughs> but but that's again where we're entering this territory where it's like, okay, well, you have a non-genre fan making a genre film and that's okay if I feel like they respect the genre. And I don't feel like based right. on those pull quotes or the movie in general that Mike Nichols respects the horror genre. Which is wild, right? Because we've talked about a number of films where the director has flat out said, I don't like horror movies. I don't really want to make one. And then they go on to make an all-time classic horror film. And, of course, that wouldn't happen for Mike Nichols. But, you know, his no. career would be rejuvenated with The Birdcage just two years later. But, yeah, it, it's just, I, it's unfortunate because I would love to see what the, like, perfect version of this movie, what the ideal version of this movie would be. Yeah, or, like, give everybody, well, not $70 million, but give everybody a little, you know, David Lynch $5 million Mulholland Drive money and say, okay, go out and make a 20-minute version of what your desired version would look like, and then yes. we'll just include four different ones on a physical media release there you go there we solved it we also get more jokes here because when james spader leaves the precinct we have richard jenkins going did he say he peed on his shoe or in his shoe and it's like why is that joke even in here i don't care because i like it but like mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just like why are we doing jokes right now well apparently in a retrospective interview i think within the last couple of years even richard jenkins said that he did a lot of improv in his character like he fully plays he he intended to play the character as a bit of an idiot which is satisfying when you watch the film because his reactions to james spader's like everything in this interview is absolutely ridiculous like you can tell that stewart is a turning into a wolf but also (laughs) spitting a bunch of bullshit and these detectives are eating it up like it is chocolate cake right because you're watching you're kind of like there's no way they're buying this shit right and then he leaves and they're like well that's our case (laughs) that's our man yeah and you're like no the person who just walked out of the room is clearly the villain and you're too stupid to see it but i yeah that's why i think it works if you appreciate that these cops are fucking stupid then this all plays well 
Wolf said ACAB. Yeah, exactly. The other thing that I wanted to take note of is that we do get a certain amount of closure with the black thugs. I'm using scare quotes uh, because we do see the mother or the relative of one of the victims. And they're lamenting that if they're, oh, it's the mother because she says, if my son had been white, we would have, like, this case would have been wrapped up or we would have gotten more attention. And that's Mm -hmm. actually like a very astute true crime observation. Like, if the victim is white, the case gets all kinds of press and attention. And if they're black, it's like, nobody cares. And this is 1994. So bravo, Wolf. Yeah, we'll, we'll give you credit here. Five stars. Five stars. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, yes, let's jump ahead. So, Laura bails as soon as she sees Stuart because she has an idea of what's going on. So, she wants to get back to Will. And so, she's driving back. She's crying. She's upset. Meanwhile, Will is wolfing out, but he is wearing the amulet that he was given. And so, he's he's resisting the transformation. So, Laura gets back and she tells the two guards on duty, don't let anybody through the gate without calling me, and also, stay the fuck away from the barn, which is where Will has been locked up with the horses. And these guards do listen, but they die immediately. (laughs) This is true, yeah. So, Stuart... Stuart learns from the idiot cops where Laura lives, so he just drives over there. We do get one really great shot as the camera zooms in on his yellow eyes as he's driving. I think it looks great. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then he arrives at the Alden estate, and he drives over George, uh, played by character actor Peter Garrity, and then he finds Tom, played by Thomas F. Duffy, and rips out his throat. And then Laura is is just running around frantically because she's freaking the fuck out and then trips over Tom. (laughs) She straight up falls. (laughs) Yeah, it's like a slasher movie thing where she discovers a body and then she realizes, oh shit, I'm in a horror film. Okay, so question for you, because I think in the beginning of the scene, it's like, oh my God, they're making her a damsel in distress, but then she kind of pulls her Mm -hmm. way out of it. Were you bought, well, I guess we're entering the sexual assault discussion of this conversation now too. Were you bothered by a lot of this um i'll admit the early part of this so you know she trips over tom's body and then Stuart is just there immediately so he's grabbing her he's licking her earlobe he threatens to fuck her to death oh my god yes (laughs) that is a line it is something also it feels very threatening too like it feels like he might actually well he actually does try to do that so yes a hundred percent yeah like you buy it with full conviction and then you know yeah she gets this nice moment where she knees him in the crotch she makes a run for it uh she sprays him with the fire extinguisher when she gets into the barn and then she smacks him in the face with it so she is holding her own but he's wolfing out and he's got all kinds of fantastical slow-mo powers um yeah i wrote (laughs) after the fire extinguisher my next bullet point is slow motion so much (laughs) Like, I have not seen a movie that loves slow motion in quite some time. I love that insight, though, from the biography where it's like, yeah, he didn't know how to shoot these action scenes, so we didn't have enough coverage, so we use everything in slow motion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, so, yeah, I mean, I, I know we mentioned at the top, but like, yeah, he tries to rape her. Yeah, and it goes 
on. Yes, it goes on for a while. And again, because it's also in slow motion, it goes on for Mm -hmm. even longer. But yeah, he flips her over and tries to do her doggy style before Will finally jumps over this thing. And I was like, well, that's kind of funny. But then I was like, oh, but it's funny during a sexual assault scene. Mm. Yeah. That's interesting. And this is legitimate peril like this this is michelle pfeiffer trying to get the fuck away from this guy and he is tossing her around it actually looks very painful for the stunt actress that must have been filling in because she's kind of getting dragged all over this concrete floor yeah i know i mean this is like this is a very distressing scene in a movie that i don't think Mm -hmm. is that very like big on suspense so honestly for that i applaud it yeah i mean it's I don't applaud the sexual assault because I don't know that we actually needed it, especially Mm. since it seems to be there primarily just to drive Will to such a state that he can leap over this entire enclosed area. But in terms of its effectiveness at selling the threat of Stuart, yes, it works. Yeah, well, and he, I agree with everything you were saying. I don't think it's particularly out of character for Stuart to also be a rapist, given what we've seen no. of him in this film. But yeah. I, I understand your point. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it just sometimes gets exhausting when it's mm-hmm. like, well, how do we sell the stakes? How do we make this very threatening? Ooh, I know. Let's put in a rape or a sexual assault. Yeah, no, absolutely. 100%. Like, it's like, I know I, I keep saying I don't like the word. Is it necessary? But in this case, is it really necessary? Does he have to try mm-hmm. to be raping her in this in this scene? Or can he just be doing anything else by, like, A, trying to kill her? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, because we know that what he, I mean... He does spell it out. Yes, he would like to fuck her to death. So there is the threat of both a sexual assault, but also death. But, you know, he he could have just gone for the throat, as we presume he did with Charlotte. But, okay, so then Will jumps over this thing. And this is when we get our second weird sex scene of the movie. Because Mm -hmm. we get... (laughs) This fight scene between the two wolves with this goddamn saxophone score. And oh my god, this score. What the (laughs) fuck? It's like Uma Thurman from Batman and Robin. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm in my notes. I say smooth jazz mixed with ominous strings? Question mark. It's bizarre, man. Much like most of this movie, it is bizarre. Yeah, because it's it's overlaid with imagery of Stuart stabbing Will in the shoulder with a pitchfork and scratching up his face. Yeah, and we're in this like little like fountain type thing. Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, you know, just fuck already, guys. Wolves. Right, yeah. Work out that male aggression. There's a healthier, more therapeutic way. But I'm... <laughs> god damn you um <laughs> but yeah but, but i will say i'm so happy it's not even will who gets the killing blow laura walks out here and is like fuck you it <laughs> just shoots him seven times yeah and we get to see every single one of them because we're back to slow-mo as Stuart is jumping through the air with hedge clippers oh man the like, shot you of have him claws, do you not <laughs> yeah but like they're not grown in yet fully i don't think Oh, okay. He's he's a burgeoning, like, immature wolf. Got it. <laughs> the shot of him in the air with those goddamn clippers. It is so it's great. Silly. It's yeah, yeah, it's great, but it's so silly. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So he gets shot a bunch of times, and then we do see that as he dies, he returns to his human form. Yes. So he is officially dead. But okay, so mm-hmm. what <sighs> 
He didn't actually get inside Michelle Pfeiffer, right? Uh, I mean, we don't see him bite her, but we do see him grapple with her. So I wasn't sure if we were meant to believe this is kind of zombie rules where all it takes is a good, healthy scratch. Maybe so. Yeah, because, I mean, like again, I like the way this movie ends. I think it's really cool. And I love that we get we have the movie ending with kind of a film femme fatale michelle pfeiffer oh by the way I, I just figured it out it's because she fucked will that's why she transformed oh <laughs> yes and he didn't use a condom because he's probably not the condom type a hundred percent no condoms are for young people those people who are into pop so i think if i had to identify potential reshoots you know, we fade to black, we come back in, it's hypothetically the morning, we see all these police officers here, and then they go to check on Laura, and she comes out, and Michelle Pfeiffer looks like she has had about six months off of this production. Yes! She's fucking blowout, and she is made up to the tits. She looks fucking amazing, by the way, which mm -hmm. is not saying much. It's like, she's Michelle Pfeiffer, she always looks great, but she looks, like, she has never looked better in this movie than she does here, because, you know, she's wolfy. In Jack Nicholson's words from earlier, you're a very beautiful woman and the nicest girl. <laughs> God. <laughs> anyway, I think if there were any reshoots, it might have been this sequence. Because I can imagine you could do this in about a couple days. Yeah, yeah, you're probably right. So maybe they had the ending in place, but they added in this bridge with her addressing the cop. Because I, mm -hmm. so again, everyone, for the whole, like, I can smell tequila on your breath. Like, she basically walks by Roger Jenkins and is like, oh, I'll get you a drink. Another vodka tonic. I can smell it a mile away. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, and, and she does this after blaming Stuart for all of the murders which he mm -hmm. actually did commit but you know it's very much like covering her own tracks that she maybe aided and abetted will to get out of the city and right what the fuck else happened well but he didn't get out of the city he's just in the woods a wolf <laughs> yes yeah yeah i do like that shot where they come together and he's clearly transforming and she smiles because she doesn't care. Like, she saw Stuart in the same kind of yeah. transformation moment, and she was horrified by him, but because of her feelings for Will, ugh, she accepts him. <laughs> it's that he doesn't accept himself because when he sees his paws, that's when he flees into the woods. And I like that moment a lot. I do, too! I do, too! And honestly, it sets up a movie that I kind of want to see. Right? Yeah. Th this movie teases a potentially more interesting film, because, uh, spoilers, Will goes full wolf, and he's just hiding out in the woods, and then the presumed inference at the end is that Laura will go out and join him, because, yeah, she's got the yellowish eyes, she's got the increased senses, and she just kind of wanders off. Yep. And uh, th that we end this movie on a close up of Michelle Pfeiffer's face and eyes. Like, yep. Mm -hmm. All right. I I'm into it, yeah. movie. Do it. <laughs> right? It it's annoying because we don't like to be those people who say, oh, well, I wanted this movie and then I got this other one. But like, right. this little tease of an ending is more of what I would have loved to have seen of this film, right? Like, how much more interesting would it have been to have had Laura as the protagonist? 
No, I, I I agree, and that's definitely a twenty twenty three mindset coming in for us. But it's like, so yeah, yeah. I I think I think if I was you know a thirty year old in nineteen ninety four when this came out and I was seeing the marketing for it, and I I think I've been more bothered by it. But truthfully, my only exposure to this movie before I finally saw it last year was I remember seeing the box in Blockbuster mm-hmm. all the time, and I. I asked my parents about it, and both my parents were like, ugh, it's weird. And that's all <laughs> I knew. That's all I knew going into this movie. And so when my friend brought it over, I was like, I have no idea. I, all I know is that my parents thought it was weird. And that's honestly enough of a sell for me. <laughs> <laughs> Any movie that your parents told you was weird is a reason to seek it out now that you are old enough to go and decide for yourself. But but I get where you're coming from, right? Though? Because, yeah, this is mar- this is in the horror section of most well, mm-hmm. back when video stores existed. It was in the horror section back then. And that, that's not really what this is. Because, yeah, we are doing no. this corporate intrigue, satire, comedy type thing for most of the movie with tidbits of horror thrown in. And then we have a horror climax. And that's what it is. So before we kind of wrap up with our final thoughts, uh, Mm -hmm. I'm not bringing back the game full time, but I do like these kind of little end of episode teases. Mm -hmm. So one of the IMDb trivia is a statement about how different people on the production saw the point of the film or what it was trying to say. So Trace, I would like you to tell me which of the two you agree with. So... Director Nichols saw the film as being about loss and death. And Nicholson, as in the actor, and screenwriter Harrison and producer Wick saw it as a celebration of oblivion and liberation. Joe, I don't see either one of those things in this movie. I know! (laughs) (laughs) I was like, the trivia is that none of the people who made this movie knew what the fuck they were making because... (laughs) statements are true but that makes me like it more (laughs) oh my god you are such a contrarian (laughs) oh my god go watch hellraiser bloodline again oh my god uh whereas you know what maybe i'll i'll give my final thoughts to veilmon one final time okay so they they end their article by doing a checklist of male midlife crisis fantasies so here are the items on the list okay that this film allegedly broaches regrow lost hair because of course jack nicholson famously doesn't have a ton of hair at this point in his career mm-hmm. increase libido of course for a werewolf yep. film Mm-hmm. outrun the police true nah. taunt and then beat up muggers i would argue he kills them but sure yep urinate on office rivals shoes <laughs> make cheating wife beg to come back and sleep with michelle pfeiffer uh yeah that that that, that yeah so this is a midlife crisis fan- male fantasy yeah absolutely 100 yeah. that's what it is and maybe that was the target audience but also I can't imagine this movie appealing to a bunch of older straight white men who go in and be like, wait, I got to deal with all this bullshit corporate stuff. Like, (laughs) I don't even get to see Michelle Pfeiffer's tits. Like, what is going on? It's, God, I'm this, this movie is such an interesting, fascinating beast. And I admit it is not wholly successful in really anything it's trying to do. (laughs) <laughs> but goddamn, do i find it interesting I, truthfully i do not find any of this movie boring i am never bored watching this movie okay for a first watch it was fine i was like where is this going i'm confused <laughs> as to the tone and interest and audience of this film i think i enjoy 
thinking about it more than I enjoyed actually watching it. For sure. No, and that's fair. We don't have to agree on everything, as we've already discussed many times before, because we've we've been agreeing on far too many things recently. But I will say, you liking tusk and being more lukewarm on wolf was not in my Mm -hmm. 2023 bingo card there we go the surprises keep coming but yeah everyone so that is wolf mike nichols and jack nicholson's and jim harrison's and elaine mays and who knows who else is wolf Oh, also, we should we should acknowledge that Elaine May does make a vocal cameo appearance in this movie. She is the person who wakes up Jack Nicholson with his alarm. Oh, also super weird because she's like, you've been a, you must have been a bad boy last night, Mr. Mm-hmm. Randall. And he's like, actually, I was a really good boy last night. <laughs> so boring. What is that? <laughs> Okay, everyone. So before we announce what we're covering next week, um, if you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at HorrorQueers. Shoot us an email at HorrorQueers at gmail.com. Find us on Letterboxd to keep track of all the films we've covered. Go to our YouTube channel to check out all of our interviews with various horror filmmakers, as well as our monthly hangouts where we talk about hot-button issues with some of our journalistic peers. And if you want to chat with other listeners, please join our Facebook Horror Queers group. If you have a moment, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And if you want even more content, please support the show by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash horrorqueers. We are towards the end of February, so uh, sign up and you'll get episodes on Roxanne Benjamin's There's Something Wrong with the Children, Brandon Cronenberg's Infinity Pool, Elizabeth Banks's Cocaine Bear, M. Night Shyamalan's Knock at the Cabin, and an audio commentary on Shyamalan's the Village. Um, and Joe, how many hours are we up to now? If you sign up at the highest tier, you get 225 hours of extra content? Uh, by the end of this month, we'll actually be getting close to about 228, 229. We're coming in Ooh. close to that 230 mark, folks. So, so close. So yeah, everyone, $10 gets you almost 230 hours of extra content. So go sign the fuck up. There we go. Joe, we're finally leaving Weird Sex Month. Finally. What are we mm-hmm. talking about next week to kick off March? <laughs> yeah, no theme next month. And since we're out of weird sex month, I felt like we should really just repress the sexuality trace. Just like really tramp it down, suppress it, put it down really, really low into your body. Particularly if you're going to check out a mansion that maybe has a bunch of ghosts in it. So we're going to travel all the way back to 1963, a little black and white extravaganza called The Haunting. Oh boy, everyone. Robert Weiss's The Haunting. Um, I'm, I'm actually really excited to revisit this um, because I'm definitely a person who saw the remake first. <laughs> yep, me too. And that remake uh, has some great production design. And we'll leave it at that. Leave it at that. But until next week, everyone, we can cross out Wolf. Indeed. And cross out Horror Queers. Horror Queers.